The School at the Chalet, Chapter Twenty Two. Grizel runs away. Saturday morning. Thank goodness, no lessons," said Margia as she heaved a sigh of relief. "Lazy bones," jeered Juliet from her cubicle, where she had been reading for the last half an hour. "The holidays will be here soon, anyhow," said Joey Bettany. "Let's hope it's decenter weather than this horrid gray day. I do hate them so." There's mist on the mountains. Margia had climbed out of bed and was contemplating, contemplating the barnbod and the barnkopf, and their fellows with pensive eyes. Can't see the top of old Mondi, and the turnjock is lost. It'll rain today, observed Juliet, shutting her book with a sigh, for her disturbed peace. We shan't even get a decent walk. Frau Munch asked Simone and Grizel and me to tea today," observed Joey in rather muffled tones, since she was buried under the blanket. "I suppose we'll go, but it is rotten for Grizel. I wish she hadn't cheeked my sister." "It is quiet without Grizel," observed Simone, who was sitting up in bed, hugging her knees. "And it will be so, uh, not nice. I mean horrid." As a groan from Joey reached her, to have to say Grizel is being punished. Don't you worry; they'll know about it already. Joey assured her. I saw Frida's eyes nearly jumping out of her head yesterday when she answered, "Mad, I mean my sister." Where's my dressing gown? She scrambled out of bed, wriggled into her dressing gown and bedroom slippers, and vanished in the direction of her sister's room. It's rotten for Joey," said Margia, who has gone back to bed again. Madame is her sister, and Grizel is her chum. Whichever side she takes, it looks mean for the other. I do think Grizel is silly. Whose turn is it to go first to the bathroom today?" inquired Juliet. "It is mine," said Suzanne, her shy voice soft. But Suzanne and Yvette had been very little to say at any time. And their voices were so seldom heard that, as Grizel had once remarked, they might just as well never be there more than half the time. Now Juliet nearly jumped. "I always forget you two are there," she said. "If you're going, Suzanne, you'd better toddle along. I can hear Marie coming for Amy's water." She got up as she spoke and fished out her bedroom slippers and rolled up her sleeves. Preparatory to giving Amy her bath, that she should do it had become quite a recognized thing now, and to Juliet it was a great thing that she could help even in so little a way, as some return for her head's goodness to her. She could never help contrasting Miss Bettany's quiet acceptance of the state of things with the behavior of her Anglo-Indian headmistress under similar circumstances. That lady had been mainly concerned about the loss of her fees. Of Juliet's feelings, she had thought not one jot. Juliet had not suddenly become an angel as a result of her present head's treatment of her. She was very human, girl, but she was deeply grateful. And since she was thorough in whatever she did, she was making valiant efforts to become the same sporting type of girl. As that of which her headmistress belonged, this bathing of Amy, which had been a self-imposed task, sometimes bored her very much. 
but Miss Bettany's thanks had filled her with a determination to go on, and as a result she was learning that a duty undertaken for love of person isn't half so tiresome as one which is thrust on one. As for Amy, she had quite overcome her fear of Juliet, and chatted gaily as the elder girl sponged her down and then rubbed her dry. "'There you are,' said Juliet finally, as she finished drying between the little pink toes. "'Now buck up and get into your clothes. Who's in the bathroom now?' she went on, raising her voice lightly. "'Simone,' replied Joey, who had come back from her. I'm next, and then you. Oh, and Madame says go past Grizel's door quietly, as she wants her to get a good sleep, cause she seemed so tired last night. All right, said Juliet briefly. Strip your bed, Joey. I say, I don't think you'd better put your bedding over the balcony today. It looks as though there was going to be a splash. Twon't come yet, said Joey, the weather-wise. "'Probably not till this afternoon. "'It's going to be a beastly day,' she added, "'shaking her pillow vindictively. "'It jolly well wish it was over. "'Nobody seemed in a particular happy mood that morning. "'The girls were subdued under the consciousness of Grizel's disgrace. "'The staff was worried for some reason in the kitchen. "'Marie was accused her small brother Eugene.' who came to help with odd jobs of having helped himself to the apples she had left in the big dish overnight. Sixteen apples I leave, she scolded, and now there are but ten. Where are the others, rascal? Thou hast eaten them, thou hast stolen. Eugene, a solid person of eleven, looked at his sister solemnly. Nay, Marie, was all he would answer to her accusations. But I say thou hast. Who would take them if thou did not? Nay, Marie, said Eugene sincerely. All he knew was that he hadn't touched the apples, whatever his sister might say, and he cared for nothing else. Madge, hearing the disturbance in the kitchen, went to discover what it was all about. Why dost thou scold, Marie? she inquired in fluent German. This rascal, madame, he has stolen six apples, six. Good gracious, observed Joe, who had followed her sister. He'll be ill. No, Marie, observed Eugene, still as placidly as ever. Marie turned to her headmistress with outflung hands of helplessness. You hear him, madame? That is all he says. Who else would steal them? No, madame, was the parrot-like response of the accused youth. Wait, Marie, said Miss Bettany, checking the food in exclamations, which she could see to be on Marie's tongue. He is a good boy. If he says he did not touch the apples, then I don't think he did. Eugene, hast thou seen the apples of which Marie speaks? Eugene looked at her, hopefully. He had quiet he had quite given up expecting any sense from his sister. He said, No. Very well, Miss Bettany turned to Marie. I'm sure he speaks the truth, Marie, and one of the young ladies may have felt hungry during the night and taken them. I will inquire, and meantime say no more about it. Her young mistress left the kitchen, followed by Joe, who was wondering rather miserably how things would go that day. It's going to be simply horrid, she decided, 
as she attacked her roll and honey with considerable less appetite than usual. Oh, I wish it were over. Inquires about the apples did not solve the mystery. No one had touched them, and Juliet, who was a light sleeper and who had in any case awakened early, was positive that no one had left the dormitory till the rising bell had rung, except Joey, she added. Joey came to see me, said Miss Bettany, so that's all right. Well, I'm sure that it, if Eugene says he hadn't touched the fruit, he hadn't. I imagine Marie didn't count them carefully when she put them out. That's more likely than someone taking them. Now, go and make your beds and then get ready for a good walk. It's going to rain later on, so we won't get games this afternoon, I'm afraid. Joe, you and Simone are going to Seaspitz to the Minches, so you'd better not go with the others. Get your practicing and mending done this morning instead of going for the walk and change before lunch. Herr Mensch rang me up last night to say he was going to take you all for a motor ride up the Tiern Valley and would be at the fence gate for you at two o'clock, so you must be ready. What he will do if the rains come, I don't know. Thus we're telling the question on Joey's lips. Now run along, all of you, and get on. Please go quietly. She had said grace previously, so they all got up and went upstairs in a subdued manner as she passed the door of Grizel's prison. With Simone close beside her, Joey heaved a little sigh. What is it then, Joey? demanded Simone. I don't know. I feel as though something's horrid were going to happen, she turned to her friend. Sort of a foretelling, you know, spooky and awful, she added incoherently. I do not understand, said Simone, who might well be forgiven for not understanding. Oh, well, I can't explain it, replied Joey impatiently. Come and make your bed. They were halfway through when the chink of china on a tray and the sound of careful footsteps told them that breakfast was going to Grizel. It's awfully jolly to have your breakfast in bed, grumbled Margia. I wish I had. Worth being naughty for. I say, what's that? As a startled cry reached her ears, before anyone could say a word, there came the sound of hurrying feet, and Miss Bettany flung open the door of the dormitory. Girls, which of you has seen Grizel Cochran this morning? A startled silence followed her question. Finally, Juliet answered, I don't think any of us have, madame. Isn't she in her room? No, the windows are wide open and her clothes are gone. Are you sure you haven't seen her? You could have heard a pin drop as they digested this information. Do you mean you think she's run away? vented Margia at last. Of course she hasn't, exploded Joey. She's broken bounds, that's all. And I think she's a beast. Hush, Joey, said Miss Bettany. Of course she hasn't run away, Margia. For one thing, she has no money, and for another, she hasn't anywhere to run to. But it's very tiring. I did think I could trust you girls. She turned and left the room as she spoke, leaving a startled group behind her. They did not quite know what to think. Up till this moment, they had felt a good deal of sympathy for Grizel, and her brilliant idea of vaselining the blackboards had rather captivated them. But this was quite another thing. 
It was untrustworthy, and as Margia said later, not cricket. With all her wilfulness, Grizel had never yet failed to play the game, and the shocking discovery that she could fail rather stunned them. Presently, Juliet went back to her task of bed-making, and they all followed her example in a deathly silence that said far more about their feelings than any amount of speech could have done. While they had finished, Joey and Simone went to their practice, while the others got ready for their walk with Miss Minard. Presently they set off, passing Madge and Mademoiselle on the way, and one going over to the Baku to make inquiries as to whether Grizel had been seen about there, while the other was going down to the Sparts by the mountain path on the same quest. For some forty minutes Joey worked away steadily at her scales, her mind anywhere but on what she was doing. Suddenly she jumped up. Up the turnjock. Oh, she was looking at it last night. That's what she was thinking of. I must go and fetch her back. With Joe the impulsive, to think was to act. She dashed along the cloakroom, tore madly into her mac, dashed into Simone and gasped, Simone, Grizel's gone up the turnjock. I'm off to fetch her back. You must stay and tell Madge when she comes back. Goodbye. Before the astounded Simone had taken in half the sense of what she had said, she had gone. Thus it happened that a, dis a distracted and worn-out Madge was met some half an hour later by a tearful Simone who sobbed out that Joey had gone up the wicked turnjock to find Grizel. Chapter 23 on the Turnjock To go back a few hours to the time where Grizel awoke in the early grayness of the morning is now necessary. When she had got into bed, she had banged her head on her pillow four times, saying solemnly, Four o'clock. As she did so, she woke up just as the old grandfather clock below chimed four times. For a minute she listened for the breathing of the others, and then she remembered. She was by herself as a punishment, and she was going to climb the turnjock that day, at last. She thought, as she climbed cautiously out of bed, shivering a little with the cold and excitement, Grizel began to dress in the half-light. She was soon ready, and then, picking up her electric torch, she stole downstairs in her stocking feet to the kitchen to see if Maria had, by any chance, left any food out. She found the apples on the kitchen table, and abstracted six, dropping five of them into her knapsack, and beginning on the other. There was nothing else, however, and she dared not risk opening the cupboard in case any of her doors should creak. Still six apples, two rolls of bread, and a slice of Maria's kuchen were not so bad. The next thing was to get out. It would be madness to attempt to open the doors. What she decided on was almost as mad. The window of the room opened onto the balcony that ran all round the house. Grizel climbed over the railing, hung for a moment from the ledge of it, and then dropped. Mercifully, it was only ten feet above the ground, and she had learned how to fall easily, so beyond a bumped elbow she came to no harm. 
When she reached the fence, the cows that were pastured in the valley were coming along, led by the big cream-colored bull who was the lord of the herd. The boy who was herding them looked curiously at her, but made no comment. Probably he thought that she was waiting for the rest of the party. When they had passed, Grizel set off again, this time at a reasonable jog-trot pace, which she knew she could keep up for some time. When she had reached the tiny hamlet of Lauterbach, the last remnant of the darkness had gone, and it was broad daylight. A man was chopping wood for the fire outside one chalet, and he was whistling a jolly tune as he worked. Two or three goats tethered nearby, bleeding at the sound of her footsteps, and a baby kid came skipping alongside her, its head cocked inquiringly on one side, its yellow eyes full of innocent inquiry, which won her heart instantly. "'Oh, you darling!' she cried, trying to catch him in her arms. But Master Billy was as shy as he was curious. With a terrified, "Meh," he made a side dash away from her and raced for home and mother. Grizel threw back her head, laughing happily as the sight of him running away. The peasant looked at her and grunted, Gruscott. She answered him and then went off. All remembrance of the fact that she was in disgrace and had no business to be here had faded from her mind in her enjoyment of the morning. Even the actual ascent of the great mountain that hung so threateningly over the upper end of the valley was forgotten. Like a good many unimaginative people, Grizel possessed the gift of living in the immediate present, where Joey and Madge would have been dreaming of the mountain summits and the joy of the hard climb. She was simply wild with the delight in her present surroundings. As she swung along, she began to sing one of the folk songs she had learned in her English school. She finished the song with a wild flourish of her stick and discovered herself at the foot of a narrow path that wound up and up between bushes and rocks. A tiny stream trickled down far above her, looking like a silvery thread in the cold light. Grizel stopped and debated with herself, should she eat her breakfast where she was, or should she go till she reached the elm where she might buy her milk? I'll eat an apple, she decided, and then I'll go on. Coo, what a scramble. She sat down on a convenient rock and bit firmly into the apple. Jolly it is, early in the morning, she thought, as she flung the core into the nearby bushes. Well, I must pull up my socks and get on with it. Accordingly, she shouldered her knapsack once more, picked up her stick, and set off cheerfully up the narrow path, whistling cheerfully as she went. Presently, however, the track left the bushes and twisted around boulders and about heaps of broken stone, which she found tricky to negotiate. She had been right. It was a scramble. Up and up she clambered, unheeding of her legs and shoulders, which were beginning to ache with an unaccustomed exercise. The sun in Shinspitz was a circumstance to this, she thought, as she told onward. And as for the Mundenschenspitz, it was a baby's crawl. I hope it gets better further on. 
Far from getting better, however, it got worse, and Grizel was forced to stop more than once to rest. Oof! This is some climb, she sighed, as she sat down for the third time to mop her streaming face. However, they get the cows up here is beyond me. As a matter of fact, the cows reached the elm by a path which came over the shoulder of the mountain and was much easier, but Grizel could not know that. Presently she set off again, and this time she succeeded in reaching the elm. She nearly came to grief over the last few steps. The elm itself overhung the path, and in order to get onto it, she had to catch at a tree root and haul herself up. She was almost there when her hand slipped and she nearly fell. If she had gone, it would have meant a fall of twenty feet or more, for just there the rock had broken away. Luckily, she managed to scramble to safety somehow and reached the short, sweet turf where she lay with beating heart for the next few minutes. Presently, she got to her feet. With all her faults, Grizel was no coward. A weaker character might have given in at this point, but she simply set her teeth and went on. The elm is a long one here, and the herdsman's hut is built in a crevice in the rock, so it was a good ten minutes before she reached it. The men had long since gone to their day's work, and there was only a lad of sixteen or seventeen in the hut. He stared at her, but made no comment. Then she asked for milk in her best German. He brought it to her in a big earthenware mug and stood watching her while she drank it. Neither had anything, t never had anything tasted so delicious as here the drought of sweet milk, rich with yellow cream. When she had finished, the boy took the mug, saying in curiously hoarse, thick tones, something of which she caught only the last words, Ian Nebelstruff. Grizel did not understand, but she was not going to let him know this if she could help it. So she looked as intelligent as she knew how, nodded her head, and said, Ah, ja, ja. Again the boy spoke, this time saying something about Kian Ashitz. This, Grizel knew, meant no view, so she shook her head, this time saying, Nine, nine. Cain Ashitz, which seemed to satisfy him, for with this he said, Gruscott. He turned and went back into the hut. Grizel looked after him doubtfully before she turned and went on her way. Walking over the short, sprawling grass was a treat after the hard, toilsome scramble over the rocks and shale. She had got her second wind and went on joyously, munching an apple as she went. It struck her that it was getting rather misty, but she had no means of knowing the time, as she was not wearing her watch, and she supposed it to be the morning mist which would soon disappear. It was then about eleven o'clock, as a matter of fact, and at the foot of the mountain Joey Bettany was eyeing the path up which her friend had come with dubious eyes. Ten minutes took Grizel to the far edge of the elm, and once more the path began to wind upwards. It was easy going at first, but soon became more difficult. The mist cloud 
closed in around her, and presently she found herself struggling upwards, surrounded by white walls of mountain fog, which hid the path from her and deadened all sounds save those of her own footsteps. She was plucky enough, but the deadly silence and the eeriness began to frighten her. Some of the terrible stories Herr Minch and Herr Marini told them came back to torment her now. She was worn out, and the climb was becoming more and more difficult. Over and over again she was obliged to sit down and rest after such halt. She felt herself becoming stiffer and stiffer. Then suddenly her foot struck a loosened stone and set it rolling. She heard it go a little ways. Then there was an awful silence, and at the same moment the clouds lifted just sufficiently to show her that she was standing on the edge of her precipice. As the realization of the fact came to her, Grizel felt the last remnant of her courage oozing away and clutching at the and clutching at it desperately. If she had followed the inclination of the moment, she would have flung herself down on the ground and screamed. Luckily, she did nothing of the kind. More, she even tried to take a step or two forward. Then as the mist came swirling back once more, she gave it up. She knew where she was, for Herr Munch had described the ascent to her more than once. She had reached the worst bit of it all. Here, for one hundred and fifty yards, the path barely three feet wide, it in most places, and even less in some, crawled along the edge of the precipice, which went sheer down to the valley below. On the other side of the wall, stark rock rose, also sheerly, giving no hold of any kind. This was the part where anyone in the least degree nervous was roped and it was where the worst accidents always occurred. What made things worse was the fact that she had no idea how far along she had come. With a pitiful attempt at self-control, she sat down slowly and carefully, curling herself up against the rock wall. Little shivers, partly of cold, partly of terror, ran up and down her, laying there with only a narrow shelf of rock between her and instant death. Grizel prayed as she had never prayed before. At first the words would not come. Then gradually the old familiar, Our Father, rose to her lips that comforted her. Our Father, which art in heaven, she prayed loud, the sound of her own voice helping to steady her. Our Father, oh, send someone, please send someone quickly, Our Father, Grizel, Grizel, the cry came faintly from the mist. She sat up. Joey? It was Joey's voice. Our father, she sobbed. Then, Joey, Joey, hold on a tick. I'm coming. Where are you? Grizel pulled herself together. Joey, I'm on the precipice. I'm lying down. Look out. Almost at once, a figure loomed up out of the mist, and then Joey feeling her way carefully, was beside her. She was sitting down, pulling her into her arms, holding her tightly, saying, Grizel, Grizel! Our father, began Grizel dully. Oh, Joey, he sent you at last. Then darkness swept over her, and to Joey's utter dismay, she fainted.
It was only for a few moments, however. She struggled back to consciousness, and with consciousness came terror, complete and overwhelming. She clung to the young girl, shaking from head to foot, while Joey, with wide, straining eyes, trying to see through the mist, held her tightly, murmuring words of comfort to her. Griselle, darling, don't cry. It's all right. Honest, Injun, it is. There. Don't cry, Griselle. Joy's here. Joy's got you safely. It's all right. Over and over again, she repeated it, till finally the meaning of her words reached, reached Griselle's brain, and she began to pull herself together. Joey, she said presently. Oh, Joey, how did you know? Where to come, do you mean? I guessed. Griselle, are you better? Don't you think if we went on hands and knees, we could get back to the rocks? We aren't awfully far along, I know. Two minutes, we could do it. Can't you try, Griselle? But Griselle dared not. Joey, I daren't. Oh, Joey, I know I should slip and fall. I daren't move. Don't you move either, Joey. If you do, we shall go over. Don't move, Joey. Please don't. But, Griselle, old thing, it's awfully cold and you're wet through. Do let's have a shot at it. But Griselle's nerves were gone. She could only clutch her friend, crying piteously and mercifully for both of them. She made no attempt to move. She, had she done so in the present state of mind, there is little doubt that both of them would have gone over the edge. Finally, Joy gave up her coaxing and settled herself as comfortably as she could to await the rescue. She felt sure it would come soon. Griselle, lying closely against her, had ceased to cry. Now she seemed drowsy and dull, with a sudden throb of fear. Joey Bettany faced a new danger. She had read of the death sleep, which continued, cold brings on, and she realized that already Griselle was only semi-conscious. At all costs, she must rouse her. Griselle, she said impatiently, Griselle, wake up. You can't go to sleep. Griselle muttered something drowsily, but made no movement. Joey slapped her face smartly and nearly brought disaster to them both as the elder girl stirred. Griselle, Griselle! Yes, Joey, I'm here. But you must, you must stay here, sobbed poor Joey. Oh, Griselle, don't go to sleep. I'm not, but I'm so tired, murmured Griselle. I know, but oh, you mustn't. Oh, I can't bear it. Her tears fell on Griselle's face and did more to wake her than anything else would have done. Joey crying was a wonder not to be understood. Don't cry, Joey. It's all my fault, and I'm sorry now. Oh, if we both die, it will be my fault, and Miss Bettany will never forgive me or look at me again. Joey began to gurgle hysterically at that. Don't be silly. If we both die... We shall be d What's that? She sat with head upright, listening for the sound of her quick ears had caught. It came again, and the long, melodious call of the mountaineer. Griselle! She cried. Griselle! She cried. We're found! Then, with all her strength, she cooed. 
The yodel came again nearer this time, and as she answered it, Joey noticed that as long last the mist was thinning. Then came the sound of careful footsteps, and finally the dear familiar figure of Herr Minch, looking more like a benevolent giant than ever. Behind him came the slighter form of Herr Marini, and behind him again two of the herdsmen, who had been pressed into service. To a skilled mountaineer like Herr Minch, the narrow path presented no difficulties. With one big stride, he had stepped across the two girls, then, turning around, he bent down and picked up Grizel, while Herr Minch helped Joey to her feet. The next few minutes were dangerous enough for Joey's cramped muscles, would not work, and she nearly fell. Quickly, Herr Marini had her firmly, and twenty minutes later they were on the elm where Madge awaited them with white faces and eyes dark with the agony she had undergone. If Herr Marini would have allowed her, she would have carried Joey herself to the herdsman's hut, where a potent drink of hot milk mixed with brandy from Herr Minch's flask was given to them before they made the final descent to the valley. Two hours later the sun appeared in full glory, gilding all the peaks, and driving away the last rags of the mist from the sinister mountain which had so nearly added two more to the toll of its victims.